With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good evening. Tonight I want to speak to you. Don't you listen to your radio? No, I'd like to talk to you tonight. I could listen to you talk all night. Welcome to the night. Mr. Bradley. Bradley, Jason L. Next caller, you're on the air. While the others sleep. A little conversation. We will find you. Talking Boston's News Radio, WBZ. I'm going to take a look at a book, a very fine book, The Great War in America, by a gentleman named Garrett Peck. World War I and its aftermath. And we'll talk about, we'll talk about it all, really. In a very important war, the most important war, World War II, more folks died, but the World War I created greater changes. Four empires were toppled. Everything was redrawn. We're real happy to have Garrett Peck with us, the author of the Great of uh, the Great War in America, World War One, and its aftermath. How do you do, sir? I'm very good, sir. How are you? And good morning. Yeah, we're glad to have you with us. Yeah, thrilled to be here. Thanks so much. We'll start out uh, kind of chronologically, and then we'll we'll not be chronological. But first, what were the forces in uh, place that precipitated World War One? I? I mean, the the assassination of Ferdinand by Princip, you know, that was just a small event. There had to be tectonic tensions in play already. Yeah. What were they? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you had these alliances across Europe, and uh, Germany especially was kind of at the, at the heart of it all. Um, it saw itself really being encircled. On one side, they had Russia on the, on the east, and on the west, they had France. And so even though Germany was the uh, the central power of all of Europe, and the strongest military and the strongest economic force, the Kaiser Wilhelm II really felt somehow Germany was encircled by this. And so he had this alliance together with Austria. Later on, he brought in the Austria, the um, Ottoman Turks. And so you had really two competing camps. And even though everyone was related to each other, given all the, all the, 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 the kings and the Kaiser and so on, they were all grandchildren of Queen Victoria of England, which was really remarkable. <laughs> and once the, once the Archduke was assassinated in Sarajevo, Europe fell into war in five days. It was, it was just remarkable. And once they finally declared war, once Austria declared war against Serbia, boom, 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 they, all the countries just fell like dominoes. And they weren't able to stop it. It was just incredible. What was the the beef with Serbia that the uh, the uh, Austrian Empire had? The Austrians had uh, in nineteen I believe nineteen eleven they had annexed Bosnia Herzegovina. You know today it's an independent country out yeah. of the former Yugoslavia, uh, but it was you know, predominantly Serbian, and the Serb the country of Serbia wanted that uh, that province for itself, and instead the Austrians annexed it, and they were really really upset that the Serbs were. And so they effectively became state sponsors of, of terrorism. And 
they've uh, basically funded this group called the Black Hand, which then led to the demise of the Archduke and his wife. So, broad daylight in the middle of Sarajevo. This is not part of your job to answer this question, but you might just happen <laughs> happen to know the as detailed as you can be about the events that day, because I find it fascinating. There was the Archduke was in a car with his wife, and there was a, a mishap. There was an attempt, but it failed. And then, as I understand it, Gavrio Princip all of a sudden found himself within range to, to do the deed, and he ended up doing it. Can you add anything to that? Yeah, the, the Archduke's driver got lost, and so they had to back up and turn around on a bridge. And Princip, the, the assassin, who was only 18 years old, uh, had stepped inside of a store to grab a sandwich. And when he stepped back out, the, the Archduke's column was driving right past, and he just jumped out and jumped into the Archduke, uh, Archduke's car and put the bullets right into the, into the bodies of, of the Archduke and his wife. It was just a total fluke. If you if you go to Sarajevo, you can see the pistol and everything that that uh, that was used, which is kind of impressive to see that one handgun and what it, was unleashed from that barrel. Yeah, just incredible. From one assassination starts this horrible war, which you know. Okay, and now all we the go consequences to, that flow out from it. Now yeah. we get to the U.S. and we steered clear of it for a long time. Why did we do that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, for a number of reasons. Um, for one, the U.S. had never ever been involved in a major European war before, uh, going all the way back to George Washington, who had counseled uh, Congress and, and the nation in his farewell address. He basically said, steer, steer uh, clear of entangling alliances. And that was really held as gospel for foreign policy in the United States. Like, we're going to really stick to our, side of the, to our side of the Atlantic Ocean and not get involved in anyone else's war. So that was part of it. Uh, another major factor was the fact that the, the United States was a really a, a, a melting pot. And leading up to World War I, we had the highest percentage of immigration ever in our country. So about a third of Americans were either uh, foreign-born or first-generation, which is pretty incredible. We've never had a ratio ever, ever that high. And many of them came from many of the combatant countries. So we had lots of Germans, you had Irish we had Russian Jews, we had Italians, and it's sort of like all these different countries who are all at war with us, or war with each other, are now part of our citizenry, and none of them really want to get involved in this war. So Woodrow Wilson, who's the president at the time, really recognizes that, that the country is torn over this question of getting involved in the war, and therefore the best path is to stay out of it. Okay, now Wilson led a divided country in what pressures were brought to bear that made him finally do it. Yeah. Um, in, in a nutshell, it was the German submarine campaign. That was that was the national security threat that was brought to the, to the American shores. And for the longest time, we thought our two oceans on both sides of us were going to protect us from any kind of marauders. And of course, the British burned Washington in, in, in 1814, and and uh, the German submarines were sinking all kinds of ships right off right off of our shores in 1917 and 1918. And effectively, what they were doing was was called unrestricted submarine warfare. So, any ship that was on the high seas could be sunk, and that was license for German U-boat commanders to assassinate Americans on the high seas. And with that, that, that was ultimately the national security threat that Wilson recognized that's going to have to bring us into the war to Didn't, stop this kind of wasn't thing. Wasn't that a mistake by the Germans? If they hadn't done that, we wouldn't have gotten involved. Uh, yeah, it, it was, ultimately, yeah. Um, they took a strategic calculation. They thought they could knock England out of the war within six months of resuming this unrestricted submarine warfare. Because England, you know, since the uh, 
1700s has been heavily dependent upon food imports to feed its population. So if they could starve England out, England would have to surrender. If they could simply just sink all the ships. And in, in the U.S. At, you know, at this time, we've got an army of 112,000 soldiers. That's it. I mean, we're so ill-prepared to go fight this war. So no one ever thought that the U.S. would send 2 million soldiers to go fight in the trenches of France, which is actually what we did. Wow, so the Germans see. really miscalculated. Now, in the decisions about whether or not to go get involved in World War I, Woodrow Wilson had counsel of a civilian. I'm interested in the personage of Colonel House. Yes, Edward House. Remarkable figure in American society, uh, kind of a one-of-a-kind. He was a private adv political advisor to the president, and he was offered a cabinet position, and he didn't want it. He liked being sort of this neutral private advisor. He could live in New York City and then come down on the train and advise Wilson on all kinds of different topics, and we've never seen anything like this before or since in American history. What Was he... What else is interesting about him? I, can you flesh him out a little bit? I, I saw his picture and read a little about him, and I'm, I'm interested in Colonel House. Yeah, yeah. He, he, was, he was kind of frail and kind of balding, and well, he came from Texas, and he, did not, he, he had a, did not really have the constitution for the hot summers, and uh, his father left him a great deal of money, so he was ever effectively able to play at politics. So he moved up to New York City and uh, also had a place up in, uh, I believe, up in Canada, and uh, he got in, in touch with Woodrow Wilson when Wilson was running for the presidency in, 19, uh, in 1912, and they became fast friends. And he continued to advise him kind of from the sidelines, and eventually he became his main political advisor. So even as, the, uh, as World War I broke out, Wilson had this great idea of we will offer mediation to the different sides. So in other words, we're going to be kind of the, the, the peacemakers here. Right. And so repeatedly he sent – Edward House over to Europe to negotiate with all the different players. So um, one historian referred to to, uh, to House as a high-class sponge because he could basically absorb all the different opinions and then regurgitate it back to Wilson. Uh, okay. So he, he basically kind of listened his way in to all these different people. And you know, not really a confrontational personality, but but very, very soothing and, and a friendly person to be with. And and it's and it's a House and Wilson kind of together. They come up with this framework for the League of Nations, ah, all which right. then which then launches them into the into the Versailles sorry into the Paris Peace Conference in 1919. Now we're all pretty familiar with uh, what Germany was trying to accomplish in World War II, but what was Germany trying to accomplish in this one? Yeah. Germany, excuse me, Germany saw that its participation in the war actually is defensive, which is kind of amazing, uh, given that they were the ones who, who struck out on the offense from the very, very beginning of the war. But they believed that they had to knock out their enemies so quickly before they could whittle them down. And so hence they, they marched in through Belgium. Belgium was a, a, a neutral country, but they wanted to be able to outflank the mountains along the French border, the Germans did. And so, therefore, they marched through Belgium, and that brought England into the war on uh, on August fifth. And uh, so, most of the most of World War One was actually fought in northern France, which is pretty remarkable. So, hence the French were quite irked because northern France was just devastated with all the artillery and whatnot. Um, ultimately, Germany wanted to have to effectively do dominate the continent, both politically and also militarily. And, uh, you know, it, it, and not just the, the Germans, but also the Russians, the French, the English, everyone had, like, territorial ambitions. They wanted to be able to take lands away from, from their enemies and also to be able to charge reparations to, to get a nice big check for having won the war. 
and forcing your enemies to pay for your your side of the war. Did the the four empires that were toppled were they did they were they toppled right away so that it was a free for all or were they toppled after? So the grab went really, on then. Yeah, they they really toppled afterwards, um, or well, in one case even during. Uh, that was the Russian Empire, which uh, there was first a, a a revolution in early 1917 followed by the Bolshevik coup later on. Um, they called it the Second Revolution. It really wasn't a revolution. It was a coup. It was a, literally a palace coup. And uh, they overthrew the uh, the provisional government. So that's one of the Russian empires that fell. And then poor Russia then fell into this horrible civil war where 20 million people died over the next couple of years before the, before the Bolsheviks finally took power over there. Um, but uh, you also saw the German Empire f- fell. You saw the Austro-Hungarian Empire fell, and then lastly, the Ottoman Empire, which encompassed much of the Middle East. And, of course, Great Britain and France had territorial ambitions for much of the Ottoman Empire. And thus you see those two powers redrew the whole Middle Eastern map. So all the countries that you see that are south of Turkey, those were all drawn by the French and the British. So Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, uh, Kuwait, and so on, those were all drawn by the Western powers. And you kind of imagine the resentment on the side of the Arabs a century later. Um, if anyone here ever saw that, that tr- tremendous movie, Lawrence of Arabia. Yes. Did you ever see that one? Yeah, a great lot. movie. I've seen that a and, lot. Yeah, fantastic movie. And Lawrence of Arabia, of course, was advocating for Arab independence. And, hey, the British will support your independence against, against the Ottomans. And what happens? <laughs> the British simply replace the Ottomans at the top of the hierarchy, and so much for Arab independence. And, and you see where the, all this resentment, even to this day, comes against the West from the Arabic world, because no one wants to be colonized. You know, they were promised independence, and instead they got another overlord, which no one wants. So prior to the redrawing of that, that was all just the, the name of that area was Ottoman Empire or, or something else? Yeah, it was, it was called the Ottoman Empire. And, of course, they had a bunch of different provinces, under it. But the Ottoman Empire, the Ottomans weren't, they were Turks. It's basically what, what Turkey is today, the, the leftover remain of, of that. And uh, they ran a very multinational uh, empire and were fairly tolerant. You know, they had Christians and Jews and Muslims, but predominantly Muslims. And, uh, but then they certainly also had you know, millions of Arabs as part of that empire as well. And they kind of held it together for a long time until 1919. Okay, we, uh, just to remind folks who we're speaking with, it's Garrett Peck, author of this great book, The Great War in America, World War I and its Aftermath. Back to the uh, dithering about getting in. And I read somewhere, whether it was in the blurb that came with the book, it said, I think, we're trying, we were trying to build foundations for world peace. But were we really, because that seems kind of abstract, uh, and not really enough of a reason or motivation to get involved. Were we really trying to build yeah. world peace? Yeah. Certainly from Woodrow Wilson's standpoint, uh, and the way he framed the war as, as when he made in this very, very famous uh, war address on April 2nd, 1917, when he went to Congress and said, hey, we need to go to war, he made this incredible statement, which everyone remembers this one line from him, which was, the world must be made safe for democracy. And in in this way here, he really framed the war that we had no intentions of seizing any kind of territories. We wanted no reparations. We wanted to defeat militarism and then build an international framework for world peace. In other words, we hope this is going to be the last war we ever have to fight. Uh So we have to overthrow militarism and autocracy, i.e. the the German government, and 
And after that, we're going to build the League of Nations. We're going to build this framework that will mitigate conflicts before they result in war. Okay, and okay. hopefully we can put war behind us. So this is really like the most idealistic war the United States has ever been involved in by far. And how many fronts were there at any one time going on? A, a lines of combat in different areas. Yeah. Um, it's complicated, just like in World War II. Um, there's a Western Front and an Eastern Front. And there's also combat going on in northern Italy along the uh, Austrian border. The Italians have entered the war on the side of the Allies, and so they're fighting against the Austrians. There's also fighting that's going on in the Balkans. And uh, then, of course, the British have opened up a front in both through Palestine and then also coming up from today, what's now Iraq in Mesopotamia. So there were fronts all over. Um, early on, the Japanese declared war because they wanted to seize all the German territories in the Pacific. So uh, very quickly, they kind of swept up the German colonies. And then in addition, they were also fighting in East Africa because the Germans there never surrendered. And they had a mobile force that ran around the British uh, for the entire four years. Wow. They never surrendered. Is war seasonal at this time? Do they have to quit fighting in winter or do they continue to fight? They actually do fight throughout the year. Uh, that, that said, they tend to curtail fighting in the wintertime just because there's so much snow and so much rain. Yeah. And it's just so much more difficult to supply the armies in the trenches. The, road, the roads get so gummed up and whatnot. But, uh, but for example, the Germans launched their final series of offensives starting in March of 19, uh, 1918, trying to knock out the Allies before the Americans can really get involved in the ground fighting. Right. And so that, that was really before. That was even earlier than most people thought they could really start this campaign, but they did it. And that's where I pick up here in spring of eight and With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, Protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you're ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. 1918, Americans were involved, and the is it Pershing allowed them to be used... They, there was a movement by the Germans that cut the Allies in half, and they needed to get the Americans in there. Can you talk about that and really detail that out for me? Sure. It's kind of incredible, considering that, again, we had a tiny army leading up to this, and our, our army was really uh, relayed around the country to fight the last war, which is the, the Indian Wars. And so we, our largest units were regiments, largest, you know, set up in Arizona and whatnot. And so we had to create, we had to create a draft and then conscript 4.7 million men, and then send two million of them over to France, which was quite an achievement. And given that we were only in the war for 19 months, so we got these two million men over to France. They're kind of only partly trained, so then they have to learn how to fight and so on. So it really takes them a, a full year to get this army 
up and running. And uh, a couple of the divisions have gotten there early. They've gotten more training than the others. And when these major German offensives break out in the spring of 1918, the, the French are so desperate, and, and, and the British are as well, um, that they ask the Americans not just to take over quiet sectors of the front, but actually to provide soldiers who can fight in the trenches um, against the Germans as they're, as they're forming up this big attack. And so Pershing agreed to that, and he handed over about 150,000 soldiers that actually became part of the French army for a brief period and, and fought with them. And they fought some really, really crucial battles. Uh, one was Chateau Thierry, so very, very famous, and right next to it is Belleau Wood, and, uh, which is immediately right to the northwest. The two divisions were placed right effectively at the apex where the Germans were advancing, and they held the line right there. And that's the, the two divisions right, right there were the 1st Infantry Division and the 2nd Infantry Division. So pretty remarkable. This is the first time the Americans were kind of wholesale thrown into the fight and out of Allied desperation. So this and, is the first. Uh, we stopped the Germans. So this is the first time these people have actually experienced trench warfare. Or did, did their training include the gr the grueling, grisly, wet and cold of trenches, or was that a shocker to them? No, it wasn't a shock at this point. They they'd been over in France already for about a year, and so they had been rotated in and out of quiet sectors of the front. Okay. And generally, the, the French were, uh, and our, they, by the way, the American sector was in Lorraine, so kind of around Verdun and kind of to the east of there, kind of mountainous terrain. And it was a fairly quiet sector, which is why we took over that one sector. And uh, frequently, the French would ask us to, to fill in a division so that way they could shuffle more of their troops over to, to areas that were under threat. And so thus, we took, you know, we got into the fronts. But not a whole lot of fighting took place, not until really May of 1918. Now, you spoke before on how many fronts there were. How, how many uh, allies were the Germans actually fighting? And part two of that question is both, I guess, this in this war and the next war, how does one country mobilize and muster enough force to, to fight a bunch of allies? How did the, the Germans do it? Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Um, organization helps. Um, you also had basically every young man was a reservist. So they had a huge, they had a huge army and, uh, and a well-trained force and that they can mobilize immediately and they have millions, several million young men who immediately could start invading Belgium or immediately move over to the Eastern Front and start fighting the Russians. And had they been and, ramping uh, up their mechanized warfare capability for a long time? Um, uh, well, mechanized in the sense of the railroads, yes. Uh, the Germans never had tanks in the war. Uh, the British and the French did. But the, uh, the Germans certainly had a lot of railroads, and that's how they moved all the soldiers around. And given where the position was, right there, right between the two fronts, so it's easy to move soldiers back and forth as they needed to. And that's a big deal, especially once the Germans actually knocked Russia out of the war in March of 1918. And with that, they were able to transfer hundreds of thousands of soldiers from the Eastern Front to the Western Front. Unless you saw that big offensive in March to try to knock out England and France one last time before the Americans could really get involved in the fight. So things went badly for us, correct? Yeah. Uh, for us or for the Germans? <laughs> well, did, did they go badly for us? No, they, they, we, they didn't really. Um, we, our soldiers held the line, which is pretty amazing, and they stopped the Germans. Um, the Germans had one more final offensive they threw in July of 1918. And that got crushed in about three days. It was Good. just remarkable. And, and then a major counterattack, and, and that kind of set the stage for the fall offensives. Um, everyone thought it was going to take till 1919 to knock the Germans out. But as fall approached, and at this point we now had 2 million soldiers in France, 
and uh, Ferdinand Foch, the, the, the Marshal of France, decided, you know what, it's worth trying to knock the Germans out this year while we still can. And so he launched this major offensive, and that destroyed the German army, basically, and pushed them all the way back to Germany. So the war ended early because of the American participation. Did Hitler have to fight in this war? And I thought I read that he was injured or somehow damaged by mustard gas or something. And, and any idea of how that experience informed the thing that he would become? Yeah. Um, Hitler, who was actually Austrian, but he was conscripted by the German army. And now he was wounded several times during the war, and then he was also gassed. By mustard gas, which is why he always spoke with this raspy voice afterwards. So in all the speeches, if you listen to him, you hear this raspiness. So his voice never ever fully recovered from being gassed. And uh, along with mustard gas, you also get temporary blinded. And he had been gassed shortly before the end of the war. So when the war ended, he was actually in a, in a military hospital near the German coast, and he was just incensed that the German army, that the German politicians were surrendering because he didn't believe that the German army had given up even though the German army, in fact, had been beaten. They were streaming back towards Germany. Um, and he effectively was able to use re revisionistic history to basically say, look, the German army never surrendered, which is true. The Allies never forced the German army to surrender, only to disband. And he was able then to say, look, it, was, it wasn't the, the military that was at fault here. It was the socialists and the, and, the, and the communists and the Jews. They're the ones who betrayed our country. They stabbed us in the back. This is complete revisionism, by the way. I mean, Germany was beaten in, the, in this war. But he was able to use this revisionistic history and, and, uh, in, and the big insult that was done to, to Germany's national honor because they had to accept the war guilt clause as part of the peace treaty. And he really nailed those points, and uh, that's where, where a lot of his political support came from, Germans who were really insulted by the peace. Ah. Okay, can you talk about the Treaty of Versailles and the terms and all? Sure, yeah. The Treaty of Versailles, and by the way, how it got into this book, um, way back when I was in college, I went to a military college called VMI, and I'd written a paper that was sort of a compare-contrast essay. Um, if you remember, the end of the Napoleonic Wars ended with a treaty called the Treaty of Vienna, and it basically established 100 years of peace around Europe because it basically brought France back into, integrated France back into the framework of, of Europe, the balance of power. Okay. And the Treaty of Versailles, on the other hand, leads to the next war. And I think there's a lot of different things that are, that are at odds here. Um, Woodrow Wilson, the president, decides that he personally has to go over to Europe to negotiate this peace treaty. You know, only he can do it. I think this is really hubris. You know, presidents normally don't negotiate peace treaties. <laughs> right. But uh, he, he goes over there with a great deal of idealism. He's going to bake the League of Nations covenant into the peace treaty. So here's the idealistic American coming in. Meanwhile, the allies, the, the France, Italy, and, and, uh, and England, all have territorial ambitions against the Germans especially, and they want reparations. So <laughs> they're much more realistic about this. And these two sides are really at odds with each other. And the end result is a really bad treaty. Um, the Germans were promised that the peace treaty would be fair. It would be along the lines of the of Wilson's so-called 14 points, which were America's war aims. Um, it forced the Germans to kind of eat a bit of crow, but they said, okay, yeah, we can accept these terms. These are, we can live with these. And then on top of that, then the Allies piled on these reparations and the war guilt clause and all kinds of other things that just crushed Germany's national honor, which hence it leads to the next war just 20 years later. It's really remarkable. And now we're going to do the aftermath. A lot of things in the United States are the result of this war. Some you wouldn't 
wouldn't expect. Some you would. Now, one is, uh, well, one of these is the race riots. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So African-Americans went off and fought in the war for our country, believing if, if they fought for the United States, therefore they would be treated with greater equality. And unfortunately, when they got back, they were in the summer of 1919, there were race riots in 25 cities around the, around the country. In every case, it was the white community attacking the black community. It was just, just remarkable. Um, I live in the Washington, D.C. area, and we, we had a four-day race riot in July of 1919. So that's, that centennial is coming up in, what, four months. So it's, it's, it's a really remarkable uh, event. At the same time, the black community really stood together. It's kind of remarkable. All these young men, and there were you know, more than um, more than 450,000 African Americans who fought in the war, who wow. served in the, in the military during this time. And so many of them went out in the streets wearing their uniforms and barricaded the streets. So it was like the first time the black community really stood up for itself um, beforehand. And this is still the era of, of heavy lynching that's going on in American society. It quickly subsides in the 1920s. But uh, really, the, the war, if anything, it kind of set back black civil rights by a couple more de decades, really. And it's really the World War II generation, um, people like Medgar Evers, who was a World War II veteran, who becomes one of the main civil rights leaders. And then they pushed forward the idea of African-American civil rights in the 1950s. So, so I would have imagined that... really unresolved. I would have imagined that disgruntled African-American communities would have attacked white, but it was the other way around. How did that happen? Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a couple of reasons for this. Um, for, for one, uh, especially across the South, there is Jim Crow law, which effectively is a caste system that has placed the African-Americans on the very, very bottom rung. And right on top of them are the poor whites, and they are the enforcers of Jim Crow law. And so anytime, uh, anytime blacks demand equality or anything, then it's incumbent then upon the whites then to use terrorism and violence to basically keep the blacks down on the farm, effectively. And so that's, that's one reason. You have also in places, cities like East St. Louis, uh, right, which is right across uh, the river. It's actually in Illinois, but right across from St. Louis. And, and actually, the worst of all the riots is in Chicago. In many of these cases, uh, African Americans had been used as strike breakers. Unwittingly, they were scabs. And um, because they'd come up from the Deep South, off the farm, and so on. And there was a lot of resentment against them for doing this, hence, even more riots broke out. And thus, you saw riots breaking out, like East St. Louis and Chicago, and so on. So, in other words, in northern cities, where riots took place as well. Okay, next up, prohibition. Was that related to the war or the end of the war? Yeah, it's absolutely related to the war. Um, there was a century-long temperance movement, uh, which, which began up in New England, and uh, it really wanted to turn the country into a dry, to a dry stronghold. And they used the occasion of the war declaration to spin beer drinking into, page, into a treason because, of course, the German-Americans were the largest ethnic group, and it was also the German-Americans who brewed the beer. <laughs> so very quickly, the Anti-Saloon League, which was the main temperance organization, pushed for the 18th Amendment. And it sailed through Congress and went on to the states. And most of the states ratified the 18th Amendment during the war itself. That's most nuts. People simply, yeah, yeah. Um, most people simply thought this was their patriotic duty, that this is how we got to beat the Kaiser's army. We need sober soldiers. And no one really thought of the consequences. Huh. And by the way, there were only two states out of out of uh, 48 states at that point. Only two states didn't ratify the 18th Amendment. And do you know what two states those were? No, I don't. 
they were Rhode Island and Connecticut, okay. both of which had a heavy Catholic population, and they recognized that prohibition was targeted at them because they were largely Catholic immigrants. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Now, the Red Scare and, and communism and J. Edgar Hoover, he, he started his career during this time, and that must have, uh, that Red Scare, this Red Scare must have, again, informed his later behavior. Yeah. It's funny. Most Americans have heard of the Red Scare, and they always think of it in terms of, like, 1947 and, or after China falls uh, to the communists, you know, who lost China and so on and the McCarthyism. But the fact is we actually had our first Red Scare in 1919. This is shortly after, uh, after the Bolsheviks had taken over Russia. And then in the summer of 1919, because of high inflation, there were strikes all around the United States. So there was a great fear that all the different workers, all the unionized workers, were, were striking because they were, they were becoming communists, which, in fact, they never did. But there was a fear somehow that Bolshevism had arrived on our shores. And after an anarchist tried to assassinate the attorney general, Mitchell Palmer, he then went on this big with uh, J. Edgar Hoover, who was 24 years old at the time, <laughs> was his protege. And they went on a big red roundup. They, they rounded up uh, over 10,000 communists and attempted to deport them all. It was just really remarkable. There were, there were no like guardrails, no safeguards, and very, very little due process at that point. There was no ACLU, which was actually formed as a result of this, the American Civil Liberties Union. Uh -huh. So it was just kind of amazing. Um, and during this time, this was actually after Woodrow Wilson has had a stroke. And so Mitchell Palmer basically is operating without really any kind of guidance from the president. He's just doing this because he wants to get elected in 1920 as, as president. And finally, uh, the female vote. Yeah. The one probably one really good outcome, I, I think, <laughs> that comes out of, out of the Great War is the fact that women had really stepped up their game to support the war effort. I mean, hundreds of thousands of women supported uh, and, and volunteered for the American Red Cross, and thousands of them actually went over to, to France to volunteer in canteens. Um, in the Navy, for the first time ever, they actually brought 10,000 women that became, as they were called back then, quote, yeomanettes. And then the Marine Corps actually conscripted 300 women. They got 300 volunteers. So really remarkable. For the first time ever, women are now serving in the military. And uh, also importantly, the Hello Girls over in France, who are civilian women, but they were running the army switchboards, and many of them were up near the front. And then they struggled for decades afterwards trying to get some kind of recognition for the fact that they were there near the soldiers. So as a result of, of the, the women's participation in the war, they were then awarded the 19th Amendment. It was, it was, it was uh, passed in 1919 and then ratified uh, by August of 1920, and thus women for the first time ever could vote in a national election. Wow. with the presidential election of 1920. So that's, that's a good outcome. Garrett Women Pick, got the vote. Garrett, you are a wonderful guest. The Great War in America, World War I and its aftermath. Do you have other books? Yeah, um, this is actually my seventh book. And wow. uh, I've written quite a number of books. Uh, Prohibition is kind of my favorite topic. So my very first book was called The Prohibition Hangover. And that looked how, effectively how we got over Prohibition. To you know we what? Are today we're... <laughs> do you want to, like in a month or so, come back and do an hour on that book, even though it's not new? Sure. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating topic, and about Americans and, and alcohol, and okay. and of course, you know, Massachusetts residents, you know, drive up to New Hampshire, you know, the yeah. big liquor stores right there across the border, sure. and you know, it's all if you have a, a repeal. If you have a publicist or something that could send me the book, and I'll have my booker reach out, and we'll do it again in like a month. Oh, that sounds fun. Cool. I'd love, love to be back. Thank you so very much, man. You were great. 
You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. There you go. There's another episode of the Jay Talking Podcast. Follow me on Twitter for show updates. If you loved what you heard, like and review the show. It helps others find us. And as always, you can catch the show live. Jay Talking Live every weeknight starting Sunday, midnight to five on WBZ, Boston's News Radio. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.